The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, good evening. Um, uh, I think most of you probably know by now that this is the series on samadhi. Um, it's the fifth talk in a series of five, so um, we'll finish up this. Uh, <laughs> you'll, all, you'll all be experts in samadhi after this. Um, last week, uh, it covered quite a lot of material. It was um, the three levels of samadhi, the five jhanic factors, um, and then the four jhanas. So um, I'm just curious if anyone has any questions about the material from last week or any previous uh, weeks or, you know, um, it, just, it just felt like a lot to me when I, when I saw that it was <laughs> a 75-minute talk or something. Um, so... <laughs> um, You know the uh, the jhanas are uh, seem to be a topic of endless fascination for meditators, who um, and, and there's and there are various opinions on not only uh, the role of jhana, which 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 just means absorption you know, this kind of full samadhi, this full absorption in the object, the role of jhana in Buddhist practice and meditation. But also there's, there's uh, quite a bit of disagreement of, of what actually constitutes a jhana, what is a jhana. Um, uh, and it's, in any case, if you're interested in the topic and you want to read more about it, there is quite a good book by a, a Dharma teacher called Richard Shankman, which is called Samadhi. <laughs> and it's, I think it's three or four years old. And he goes uh, into depth quite a bit into of what um, looking in the Pali Canon, which is considered the oldest and, you know, perhaps uh, closest to uh, what the Buddha taught. So he goes through what does the Pali Canon have to say about jhana? And then what do the commentaries have to say about jhana? And, and then he interviews probably seven or eight contemporary meditation teachers, contemporary uh, Dharma teachers, the, how they teach jhana, what the, how they understand what it is. So anyway, it's it's an interesting book. But even more interesting than Richard's book is actually <laughs> is actually practicing the jhanas ourselves, and um, one of the things I talked about last week is that these states of absorption, these states of of very deep samadhi, uh, bring certain benefits. Uh, they're said to be uh, extraordinarily healing, restful, peaceful states. And um, 
The main reason for this is that the mind is so absorbed, so unified in itself that it's, it quite literally is removed from the world of suffering. You know, if this, uh, one of the things that characterizes this realm, this human realm, according to the Buddha, is uh, things change, everything changes. And uh, quite often this causes distress and suffering for us. So um, to be immersed in a realm where there isn't the perception of change is is quite an interesting, it's like, um, it can have the function of reconditioning the mind. Um, whereas Vipassana insight, the, the, the point is to see through conditions, to see that it's all conditioned. It's all, you know, it's almost like a deconstructing of uh, perception. Whereas these absorptions uh, are so merged merged with uh, within the mind or the mind is merged within itself that um, uh, we don't we don't feel that constant onslaught of impermanence and this can for for many people uh, change conditioning change how we see ourselves and it says it's you know this healing quality this restful quality to the absorptions Be that as it may, you know, as healing, as restful, as interesting as these states are, it's like, um, you know, there's a lot of interesting things to do. There's a lot of restful things to do. There's a, um, the reason we teach samadhi, the reason that the jhanas are sometimes emphasized is that they are a, um, an extraordinarily effective platform or um, one teacher I know calls it a way to supercharge your vipassana practice. It's like um, and just the, it, it, it's, it's a little bit hard to over, overstate the benefits of having this tremendous uh, foundation of stillness from which we can do insight, do vipassana, practice mindfulness. Um, so that's, that's what I wanted to talk about uh, tonight. And I thought as kind of a fitting way to, to close this series is... Uh, how does samadhi practice relate to insight practice? Or how can it relate? You know, there are a number of ways it can relate. Um, so, for, so for all its benefits, you know, all the things we've been talking about these, these last uh, four weeks, just to step back for a second and, and for, you know, just again to define samadhi as this quality of undistractedness, 
the mind. Samadhi is often translated as concentration. So it certainly includes concentration. And it um, includes this kind of unification, this uh, centering of the mind. The mind is centered on, on one thing. Um, samadhi is a kind of um, deepening, the, de- you know, the depths of our meditation uh, in- inevitably uh, involve samadhi. Um, so that factor, so that factor of, of mind, of of continuous awareness on something, continuous contact, undistracted. Um, so, for all the benefits of samadhi, for all the benefits of this uh, cultivating this mental factor, strengthening it. Um, It's important to point out that samadhi itself is limited. You know, samadhi is um, not the ultimate goal of the Buddha's teaching. Um, I understand it more as a tool. It's an extremely important tool, extremely... um, you know, it's, it's an essential tool. It's part of the Eightfold Path. It's uh, right samadhi. Um, but samadhi itself is limited. You know, so, so in a number of ways. First of all, um, just to remember that samadhi is itself constructed. You know, samadhi is impermanent. You know, I mean, it's... Um, this is actually an area where meditators can suffer quite a lot because you can go on retreat and, and deepen concentration, deepen samadhi. And, um, you know, almost from the moment you leave the retreat, you can kind of feel it melting away or feel it slipping away. And um, samadhi is a nice feeling to have. You know, when, when one is, is, is deep in samadhi, the usual aches and pains of meditation quite often are absent. You know, so that's nice. And then when one is deep in samadhi, the usual hindrances, you know, that we talked about in the third talk, desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness, doubt, these are the kind of, um, you know, over and over again, the Buddha says, these five Forces in the mind are the only thing that separate us from uh, liberation, from seeing how things really are. So when these are absent, uh, samadhi can be quite strong, and uh, and you know, and that's very nice. And, you know, people like that. But samadhi itself is impermanent, so it is this constructed uh, state that comes into being through causes and conditions. And it has its own arc. It has its own lifetime. And then it kind of fades away. Um, so, so just to remember that and just to, re- you know, that um, just because uh, you could get a certain level of concentration in one sitting or in one retreat, 
doesn't mean that that will, you know, that will happen again, that will happen in the next sitting. Um, you know, everything changes and samadhi changes. And um, experienced meditators are often quite good at tracking their own samadhi. And you kind of, you know, it kind of, you know, it kind of, there's, a, there's just a kind of, there's a peak to it and then it kind of peters out. And so having some uh, wisdom around that, some equanimity around that, samadhi itself changes. And um, letting that be okay is a really important part of samadhi practice. Um, You know, in, in the first class we talked about right samadhi and wrong samadhi. This function of samadhi, this mental factor, um, you know, can be used for, towards good and not so good, you know, skillful and not so skillful. You know, a pickpocket probably has to have quite a bit of samadhi you know, to really study, you know, see how you move and see how, you know, or, you know, or whatever you can kind of imagine. Um, fo- mental focus in itself is a, is a neutral mental factor. Um, so it, as helpful as samadhi is, as healing, as supportive as samadhi is, um, it can also be used, even if one has good intentions, you know, intentions to practice and, you know, um, because of the nature of samadhi, because of the, the kind of almost exclu- exclusive, exclusion, exclusionary nature of, of the way awareness becomes, it can be used to uh, suppress or repress things that uh, perhaps would be better off letting in. You know, so uh, one of the terms that's used for this is the, kind of the so-called spiritual bypass. You know, with the, uh, my understanding is that, you know, there's a coronary bypass, you know, you kind of go around the blockage. And when we have spiritual, emotional, psychological blockage, um, sometimes it's easier to try to find a way around it than to actually, you know, go through it. And so if my whole practice, if all I do is just work with the breath and come back to the breath and I'm only with the breath, you know, just the breath, the rising and falling, or the in and out, the breath. Um, That can be good. That can be helpful. Um, But uh, the danger in that, you know, so there's always another side. You know, the positive side is cultivating all these, these great qualities of mind. The other side is that perhaps my, you know, I'm not letting in certain emotions. Uh, I'm not seeing those emotions. And 
those are strong, you know, those could be strong emotions of, of, uh, of anger, of sadness, of grief, of desire, of really, you know, they're fueling my meditation. I, I have to view the breath. I must, you know, I must get concentrated. I must. And what's, what's fueling that? What's driving that are all these other um, parts of, of me that are in the wings, that aren't getting seen. And, um, you know, so just to kind of, you know, be, you know, be wary of uh, what are my intentions? What are my motivations of doing? Um, you know, sometimes it can be very skillful if something, um, there's some conflict during the day or something upsetting happened. To do some samadhi practice in the first 10 minutes of a sit can be very wise. Just to settle, just to, you know, come back into the body and bring up those mental factors of tranquility, of calmness, um, can be very helpful. You know, so that can be a strong basis to do, to then to maybe to let in when it feels stable enough to let in what else is going on and bring mindfulness to emotions and thinking and all those other things. So, you know, just to be, you know, um, samadhi is quite a powerful mental factor. So it can be just wielded in these different ways. And just to, just to be aware of that. Um, Usually we say in a balanced practice, for a mature practice, the factor of samadhi and the factor of mindfulness are balanced, or in balance. Um, I mean, it's just an example from, you know, this evening I was, you know, I live in San Francisco and I was getting in my car to drive down here. And you know, quite often when I'm coming to IMC, I like to not, listen to the radio or listen to music or just, you know, just to enjoy the silence and just to kind of, um, you know, be in the flow of driving and just to kind of, and so I thought to myself, yes, I'll do that. And that will be very nice. And I'll come and be very, uh, concentrated and, and peaceful and relaxed. And I started driving and really, you know, really in the flow of feeling the car and looking around and, you know, just driving after about five or six minutes. So I think like, where am I going again? And then I realized, uh, I don't have my notes. <laughs> you know, the factor of samadhi may have been strong, but the factor of mindfulness was missing, you know, and I've, uh, I've done that, you know, often I'll say, okay, I'm going to walk to the grocery store and I'm just with every step and every breath, you know, and I just feel great. And I get there and then I, you know, no wallet. <laughs> no, you know, it's like, okay. <laughs> and that's, you know, just an illustration of how, why these two need to be partners, you know, and of, of samadhi and mindfulness. Again, mindfulness is the factor that knows, that you know, quite literally remembers. 
you know, keep in mind. So, uh, in samadhi, we, you know, sometimes we say, um, that samadhi is a little bit dumb. <laughs> you know, the fact is a little bit, uh, not in any way to denigrate samadhi practice. Anyway. But, you know, it's like this. You can be really, you know, noting every step or really in, but then you kind of walk into the wall, you know, because you're, th- that knowing factor is missing. And so, I'm going to talk about this again later in the talk, but just to reinforce this idea of, for example, if you're with the breath and you're working with the breath and you have, the, and the factor of samadhi is strong and you're emphasizing the factor of samadhi, you could, you know, the practice is just to stay with the breath, just to stay with each breath. You just put the mind right there where the breath is, whether you're noticing the rising and fall whether you're noticing it, the, the, the sensation of, of air at the nostrils, you're, you're tuning in to the breath, the rhythm of the breath. Um, but you're not getting a lot of insight, a lot of wisdom into what the breath is, is like, how each breath is different, how each, you know, it's like you're just, you're just, you have enough mindfulness to stay, to stay with the breath. The way I understand it for myself and my own practice is it has this quality of making the breath the same. So it's like over and over again. It's like, you know, the rhythm, the, you know, a certain uh, a rhythmic beat of a, of, a, of a trance. It's like it's over and over again. It's the same. Whereas mindfulness practice, we often say to notice a a lo- you know, a long breath is a long breath. Notice a short breath, a shallow breath is a shallow breath. You're, you're, there's this knowing, this wisdom factor that's um, awake to the breath, awake to what each breath is like. You know, the, 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 that changing, the changing sensations that make up the breath. Um, you know the rising as rising, you know the falling is falling. Um, the rising is not the falling. The falling is not the rising. So with, with mindfulness practice, with, which matures into vipassana, it's, it's seeing things as they are. You stay in, the, you stay in reality. You stay in, you're grounded in how sensations are. Whereas samadhi practice often can get into quite an abstract, just in the way the counting of the breath is abstract. You know, there's nothing out there that's the number one. You know, the number one is just this concept. So, you know, it's like it's just this placeholder, this abstraction for the breath. So it's one, two. You know, we just, it gives the mind something to... um, you know, so anyway, that's that's a little bit of a, this distinction, um, and the idea is that these need each other. Concentration and mindfulness need each other. Um, I think it was Ajahn Chah, and we were Bill. We were talking about this, or like this idea of the uh, the front of the hand is 
mindfulness, and the back of the hand is samadhi. You know, you can't, you know, in a way, you can't really separate them. Um, we separate them out for the purposes of training. Um, but actually, um, in a deep practice, there's not much distinction between mindfulness and samadhi. They're both, they're both there. Um, to deepen samadhi practice, mindfulness is important because mindfulness is the factor of mind that lets you know that you're not with the breath. You know, if, if my attention is to be with the breath and practice samadhi with the breath and then I, you know, with a few breaths and then I'm off thinking about something, then I go, oh, you, you notice, oh, thinking about something, you know, some story, I've lost the breath. That factor of mind that knows, that's mindfulness. And then you go back to, go back to the breath. So you can see how mindfulness is the factor that remembers. It remembers, oh yeah, I was going to be with the breath. And it comes back to the breath. That's one way mindfulness is important in samadhi. Another way is that, um, like I said before, samadhi practice can often have a very narrow quality to it. You know, when you're with the breath, it can be sort of like this laser beam. It doesn't have to be, but it can be like this laser, like this tunnel, tunnel vision, which is good, which is helpful. Yeah. Uh, but the downside of having tunnel vision is your peripheral vision goes. So all of those, you know, for example, the hindrances can often sneak in the side. And, and the interesting thing, I think I mentioned this before, but when samadhi is very strong and the mind is kind of this concentrated, then it's harder to see the hindrances because the mind is, is more focused and narrow. But when a hindrance will sneak in, it can become magnified and distorted. You know, so I, so just as an example, I might have told the story, can't remember. But when I was on a long retreat and I was doing uh, a lot of samadhi practice um, late at night as the only one in the big meditation hall, and then I start hearing, you know, the door creak open. You know, it's like two in the morning, so the door creaks open, close, and footsteps getting closer, you know, curve. And then, that, ah, you know, a lot of fear came up and a lot of, um, which just seemed to hit all of a sudden, you know, and really strongly. And when I was talking about this with the teacher, she said that when the mind is, is quite absorbed and concentrated, hindrances, if they are present or if they do arise, they can become magnified. So you can have like, you know, a lot of fear or a lot of lust. It's, you know, all of a sudden this really, you know, just really have to, you know, whatever, you know, make that phone, you know, do something, you know, just, and, um, 
because something's been out of balance. The, the samadhi is very strong, but the mindfulness maybe is not as strong. And so these, these hindrances can uh, sneak in. Um, so, so it's the quality of mindfulness that helps us to see how we're relating to, for example, the breath. You know, like I said before, um, Samadhi comes through relaxation, joy, and happiness. So if I'm relating to the breath in a way that's tense and tight and impatient and with a lot of desire and expectation, that would be good to see. You know, it would be good to see that expectation and that desire. And my, the, 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 the factor of mindfulness is what lets me see how I'm relating to the samadhi. It's like, oh, there's a lot of expectation here. There's a lot of desire. There's a lot of impatience or frustration or comparing mind. Or, oh, okay. So it's like some, some teachers call that a vipassana break. You know, you're doing your, your concentration, your samadhi, and then you start to notice this tightness or this, this irritation or this, okay, time to do a vipassana break, which means you turn the mind around and just look at what, how am I relating? How am I relating to the breath? How am I relating to just this whole project of meditation and Dharma practice? And, you know, so, so mindfulness is very important in samadhi practice. In the same way, uh, the factor of samadhi is very important in mindfulness practice. And it, you know, this series has been focusing on developing samadhi itself as this kind of muscle. But there are ways of practicing mindfulness, ways of practicing vipassana, where samatha samadhi, this, this uh, factor, is not addressed at all. It's not talked about at all. And the idea is just to be mindful, just to be knowing, knowing what you're doing continuously in itself develops quite a strong samadhi. Um, so it's this continuous knowing of changing objects. Um, sometimes that's called dry insight practice because it's insight that hasn't been soaked in absorption, soaked in samadhi. Um, if anyone's familiar with the Mahasi style of practice or the Upandita or that, those teachers, and that system, at least in the beginning, is, would be a good example of the kind of dry insight of just to be mindful, stay mindful, whatever happens, stay, you know, stay, you know. Um, and that can develop quite a strong samadhi in itself just through mindfulness. Um, Are there any questions so far? So Max, I've had this idea about how samadhi or achieving samadhi is helpful. Um, And I don't think I've heard it yet in this series, so I'd like to run it by you, if I may. I'll try to be concise. 
and, and see if you think it's right on or not. Um, normally when I'm sitting in meditation, uh, um, occasionally I can follow the breath, but by far, most of the time, I'm off in daydream. So I want to follow the breath. But um, but um, my tendency toward daydreaming is still too strong, and so I'm off doing that. And so my uh, and the daydreams reflect cravings or aversions that are still maybe deep seated within me. And so the craving or the aversion uh, is stronger than my mind. It's taking over. I'm not able to follow the breath usually. But if with practice. I can get to where I can follow the breath, uh, then I'm not having those daydreams that reflect craving, and and um, and this strengthens the mind. Then the mind becomes stronger than the cravings, and the daydreams I'm having are, are no longer reinforcing the cravings if I'm able to let go of them and just follow the breath. So if I can get to where I can follow the breath for an extended period of time, then I can take this out into everyday life. And when I'm in a situation that's difficult and I might fall back on my old habits that are based on craving or aversion and and thus have a tendency to do something unskillful, now my mind is stronger than that and I can say no to it. I can apply my wisdom uh, how does that sound? Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> sounds very. Yeah, I think. But is that what happens? I mean, I no, I, I don't achieve somebody. Um, yes. Yeah. I think that's part of what happens. I mean, in in my experience, does everyone hear the question or the kind of you know this idea of? Um, As mindfulness gets stronger, um, samadhi gets stronger, it's like we're not feeding those desire, the aversion, these things. Um, So I think that's a big part of it. I mean, there's... You know, and, th- and this is one of the things that I, you know, hope to get to is this idea of um, through samadhi, it's like um, it can be very effective at um, almost like suppressing those. Uh, you know, and it, the reason I use the word suppressing, it's not quite suppressing. It's almost like. Um, You know, if you if you're so with the breath, and there's no room for thinking, there's no room for craving. Right. You know, is this kind of what, like what you're saying? Or it's not. It's more, more the craving simply doesn't happen. Cra- yeah, the craving exactly. The craving, the craving doesn't happen. Um, but the um, the roots of the craving are still there. So this is the limitation of samadhi. 
Samadhi is very, very effective at kind of giving us a glimpse of what it feels like to be free from those torments, you know, the desire and the anger and this stuff. Um, but because samadhi itself is a constructed thing, you know, once the samadhi goes away, those rush back in. So th- this is why sam- samadhi, while, while very useful, is itself limited. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, I think you understand and, that. But. And so to uproot those cravings, they're like still working there underneath, um, is that where the insight That's where the vipassana comes, comes in. in. That's where the vipassana So we were talking before about, you know, it's, it can be very confusing, the difference between mindfulness, vipassana, insight, samadhi, what, you know, all these. So my understanding is that um, when mindfulness has strong enough samadhi supporting it, it can turn into vipassana. So traditionally what's considered is when, like we talked last class about, um, this level of samadhi called access concentration. Access concentration was the third, I mean, the the middle of those, you know, there was kind of just street consciousness, parikama samadhi, and then there was upakara samadhi, which is access concentration, and then there was apana samadhi, which is absorption, jhana. Access concentration is the state where the hindrances are at bay. You know, so the jhanic factors have kind of, you know, overpowered the hindrances. The hindrances are at bay. And so traditionally it's said that that's when vipassana can start. And vipassana is using mindfulness to see the three characteristics which is where the possibility of insight is just to see change, to see suffering. And while you're lost in daydream, you can't do that. You, you can't, can't do you that. You can't see it. You can't do that. Right. But exactly. if you can let go of the daydreams. Exactly. So here's an interesting thing. So, so, so exactly. So this, this idea of access concentration is quite significant because it's, it's, when, it's almost like when the practice opens up. All these things that have been holding us back, our, our anger, our desire, our laziness, our doubts, have fallen away because, the, you know, and, and these jhanic factors have arisen. This um, connecting, sustaining, um, one-pointedness, joy and happiness, physical joy and mental joy. So these have arisen in the mind and at that point, one can, it's almost like a crossroads. One can go the more samadhi realm towards the absorptions, or one can go the more kind of dry, the vipassana realm towards insight. So, so here's another interesting thing. To get to access concentration, there are also two ways of getting. So I, I envision this big X and the two ways are through kind of the samadhi practice that we've been talking about. You just stay with the breath, stay with one thing. Just let the mind absorb into that and, and simplify and steady the mind. Or through doing this kind of more of a mindfulness practice that I talked about of, 
of it's also a continuous presence of, but it's the knowing of changing objects so this would be the more mahasi of whatever comes in you note it you know hearing you know feeling you know um, I hope I haven't <laughs> confused it this is this kind of a complicated diagram to but um, any more, you know okay so this is So, so vipassana happens when mindfulness and concentration are strong enough working together to see the three characteristics. So, um, and, and just to say one thing about the breath, the breath is a very interesting object because it's considered extremely suitable to do samadhi practice with the breath and to do mindfulness, and to do vipassana practice. So, as I was saying before, if you're, if you're doing samadhi practice with the breath, it's the simplification of the breath. It's just over and over again, the rhythm of the breath, tuning into that. If you're doing mindfulness practice towards vipassana with the breath, it's seeing the changing nature of the breath. It's seeing, um, getting really interested in, in the difference, how the breath changes. Um, does that make sense? I mean, you can kind of play with it in your own uh, practice. And it's, it's not like one of these things where you have to choose and then forever, you know, it's like there are times in practice when, um, you know, I know for myself, there are times in practice when, uh, doing samadhi, another way of talking about samadhi is samatha, doing this kind of samadhi practice um, just intuitively feels right. You know, to, to bring up these qualities of tranquility, of calm, of simplicity. The mind just wants one task, one thing to do. You've been busy all day and pulled in so many directions just to come in. You know, the centering of samadhi, it just feels so good. You know, just like, you know, just staying with that. It just feels really, uh, it just feels wise to do that and, 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 and kind of offer that to myself. Then there are times in practice when, um, it's almost like what's called for is a more open awareness. What's called for is a more, a kind of, accepting, loving, kind of letting in of whatever is the sounds, the, the body, the uh, thoughts and, and, and feelings are, are just tumbling through. And just to make myself wide, like the kind of the sky and let all the clouds just pass through and not needing some kind of project, not needing some, even samadhi feels like too much. Just to be here is, you know, just to, so, so, you know, you can see what feels, what feels like, uh, what would be skillful to do it. And often in a sitting, it's recommended 
we're going to classically recommend you begin the sitting with samadhi. So maybe the first 10 minutes is really with the breath in this very centered way, very focused way. And then there's some stability. And then you can open up the mindfulness, open up the awareness. Um, According to the Buddha, uh, enlightenment, this kind of um, liberating wisdom, comes not from samadhi, but comes from vipassana. So at a certain point in practice, it's like a teacher will direct a meditator to uh, let go of the samadhi. not let go of the samadhi they've built, but let go of the practice of samadhi. And it's almost like switching to vipassana. Um, and that's done in, in, in various ways. It's like, you know, um, one way it's done is to start to notice if if, if someone's, quite adept at getting into the jhanas and the absorptions is to notice uh, that even those states are impermanent, are, are unsatisfactory, that they change. And so it's, it's directing the mind in various ways towards seeing these three characteristics. It could be towards seeing the changing nature of our experience. Um, you know, just the rising and falling of sensations. And when the mind is very still through samadhi, um, perception can be much sharper. You can see impermanence in a much deeper way. So there's that. It can also be directing the mind towards this other characteristic, which is dukkha, which is suffering, unsatisfactoriness. So just to see, you know, where in my experience, where in your experience is unsat- what's unsatisfactory? Where's the suffering? Where's the holding? Um, and because there's so much letting go through d- in deep samadhi, the clinging that's left is often quite uh, um, kind of core clinging, deep clinging. That we, you know, it's, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm relaxed. But then, you know, there's this kind of core tension that's quite difficult to access with our kind of regular consciousness. But when the mind is really still, really calm, really settled, it's like, oh, a lot of that surface tension, surface suffering has dropped away, but there's still this kind of core fear. There's still this core wanting in the mind. It might be wanting for something, for some kind of meditative thing, you know. And so the mind can see that. Um,
you know, and, and, and just to say that um, if, this, you know, I'm curious to hear from you how it's been these, these few weeks of, you know, if, if you're drawn to the samadhi practice, um, usually the recommendation is to really go with it. Stay with it, go with it. Uh, sure, there are some limitations to samadhi, but a good teacher, I mean, samadhi is a wonderful, you know, strength to have. And a good teacher can quite easily help you to um, use that uh, strength for vipassana, for insight. So if you're drawn to the samadhi practice, to really let yourself go with it. And, um, you know, it's said that there are certain kinds of minds that um, samadhi practice is, is, it can, it tends to be easier for some people than for others. And it doesn't seem to have a correlation to anything else. <laughs> you know, so it's not like, you know, oh, if, it's, if samadhi is really difficult for you, then, you know, then forget it, you know. Um, just certain minds have certain, you know, have a, have a, I haven't seen this anywhere, but this, my theory is, and this is not, you know, this is just Max, um, is that if a person is, easily hypnotizable, <laughs> they'll have an easier time of getting into this kind of samadhi. That's just my... I, I've never really been hypnotized other than just, you know, casually through friends, <laughs> trying, trying out their skills or something. But there's something about, you know, some sort of kind of mind that is easier to, like, just, like, that can just get... You know, can just melt into something else, can merge, and that's the kind of the quality of samadhi. Um, and as we were saying, it doesn't take a lot of wisdom to do that. So, you know, there's a, you know, and I say this about, my, you know, I think I have that kind of mind that's more of a samadhi as opposed to a, a kind of mindfulness or wisdom mind. You know, it's like. Um, it doesn't take a lot of wisdom. You don't need a lot of wisdom to get concentrated. Okay? You know, it's just kind of this very, you know, my Zen teacher, you know, often says it's good to be a little dumb <laughs> to do this practice. One reason is you don't get discouraged that easily. <laughs> you know, a little, you know, it's like, okay, I'm just, you know, just doing my practice. And, you know, whereas like a more intelligent person would kind of say, you know, <laughs> You know, you've been doing this for years, and you're not, you know, so, you know, just, you know, a certain kind of perseverance, a certain kind of, you know, just to stay there, just to stay with the object, and not let anything uh, discourage you. You know, so many things will come up, so many uh, desires and aversion and doubts and all these things, but if you just can kind of just keep coming back and just, you know, in kind of a, a, kind of a stupid way, you know, just come coming back and coming back. It's quite amazing, the practice, you know, um, can deepen and unfold in a beautiful way. And that's the samadhi side. 
And then there's the wisdom side, um, which is often, you know, these are the kind of the thinkers, the kind of, you know, and the kind of, you know, um, and uh, I'm not speaking so much from personal experience, but there is... um, that can be used for tremendous benefit as well. You know, as you said, liberating wisdom comes from the vipassana, comes from the really, from the opening the eye and really seeing what's there. And, um, you know, sometimes it's said that there's the faith type and the wisdom type. You know, so you can kind of see how these correlate. And, um, and not to get to, you know, I think we all have both. We... So it's, um, other questions, other thoughts, you know, if anyone want to share your, your experience, please. Um, when I try to do samadhi practice, it's almost as if my brain's, goes in two. So I have this counting on one side, one, two, and breathing. And the other side, it, things are coming in, and I notice it. And, but then the counting is still going on, and I'm noticing things, and, the, and it drives me crazy. <laughs> so how, how do you deal with that? Or how do I deal with that? Um, did everyone hear the question? Say, um, It's really, that's a really common, you know, it's like, as Bill was saying, it's like you're, you're, through the counting, you're going against the momentum of the mind. So the mind has its own momentum, its own agenda, its own thoughts, and, and then by introducing the, the counting, it's like you're, you're, kind of like trying to turn around a big, huge ship. You know, it's like, and it goes really slowly and there's lots of, you know, little, um, so just to say that that's a very common experience. Um, One thing you might play with is just the foreground and the background and somehow giving preference, giving interest, giving curiosity to the breath, to the counting, letting that be in front and letting everything else be in the background. And it's almost like, you know, it's like you you can turn your attention here or here. And um, the nice thing about the counting is it's like you know that I mean, it's like a built-in tracking mechanism. So if you've gone past 10, you know, if you're counting to 10 in sets of 10, and you've gone past 10, you've got to 13 and 30, and, you know, then, okay, regroup, start, start over. Or if, um, you, 
you know, so I mean, so there's a way that you can also count on autopilot and be thinking, and then it's like one, two, you know, but you're kind of, you know, so that's, you know, um, just noticing that, again, noticing it and seeing if you can just re, you know, it might be changing the way you count and kind of, you know, sometimes it's like letting the sound of the number fill up the space or you, know, you can play with it. Um, but it, it, it's, you know, it, it just takes time. But, there's, but there is a kind of, almost I would say like a retraining of the nervous system. And at a certain point, that will get, you know, if your interest and your attention is with the counting, that will become more vivid and stronger. And it can almost be like a magnet that takes your thoughts and whoosh, into the counting. So, you know, something will come up and this thing will come up and you think, but then, then so it's like, but you have to kind of build that magnet or kind of, you know, you invest it with power through the, you know, through the, um, just giving attention to it over and over again. That's what strengthens it. And then it, it starts to take on its own momentum. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I do see it like a magnet because it kind of has the power of taking your attention and just keeping it there. Um, so. Thank you. So I just wanted to comment that I had a similar problem with counting. I found after doing it for a short while, I was thinking about now, did I make the count at, at just the same point in the breath cycle as I did the previous time? You know, it, it was <clears throat> revealing to see how <clears throat> how busy our minds are yeah. with that. Now, I, I found some relief in that by basically coming up with a larger statement, which was basically my breath rushing in, my breath right. flowing out. And yeah. for me, at least, that increasing the size of the phrase or something, I guess, got it big enough that my mind didn't have any excess capacity. And so, it would, you know, I was able to do that kind of, I guess, like a mantra or something. Yeah. Yeah. I was doing it. At, so I might try that. I, uh, the, uh, the other question I had was about, I'm a, a bit confused on Vipassana uh, and um, Samadhi. And so do I understand then that the jhanas are just kind of like, you know, going to the drive-in on the road to Vipassana? Uh, <laughs> Rest stop. On yeah, the, or yeah, or, you know, go, yeah. going out for you know a nice relaxing night on the town or or something. Or I mean, it, I I'm just kind of trying to put all the dots together, yeah. and it kind of sounded like in the little bit that I have read on my own, it see you know I I don't see how it directly ties back to the pasta and presumably the ultimate. Uh, Thing that we're looking for. Yeah. No. It's great. Did everyone hear that? It's a great. 
Thank you. Um, so one reason that I, I think that the, the, the absorptions, the jhanas, were, uh, in our Western insight scene weren't taught that much was because they were sort of seen like that. It's kind of, kind of spiritual tourism in a way. I mean, it was really interesting realms of consciousness. Um, but there wasn't so much of an appreciation of how they relate to wisdom, to insight. Um, as, I mean, not to, I mean, just to, just to briefly say, um, one reason for that might be that many of the first generation of Western teachers came out of traditions were taught in Asia that didn't emphasize the jhanas. So, like the Mahasi tradition. And the, so, um, but as those teachers and other teachers and, you know, have gone back, have practiced with different teachers, have studied the Buddhist teaching, you know, in the, the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, Sama Samadhi, right Samadhi, right concentration, is most often defined as the four jhanas. So that's what the Buddha, if you look in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is, you know, usually we say this is Satipatthana meditation, the four foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha says, you know, the first jhana, then you go to the second jhana, then you go to the third jhana. So obviously for the Buddha, you know, there was some value in these. And um, so it's one of the things that we can explore is how do... What is the benefit of these for us? How do they change us? How do they uh, help us to uh, see, you know, see more clearly, which is what vipassana means, seeing clearly? Um, my understanding is that, um, you know, it goes back to that image I talked about in the first class of... Um, Samadhi is like the the stillness, the stability of the table, and the vipassana is looking through the microscope, which is sitting on the table. So you know, if the microscope is like this, yes, you can look. I mean, technically, you can look through the microscope. <laughs> the microscope still works and so still has its, but it's so much easier when it's boom, it's on this, this rock solid, you know, foundation of stillness. Um, one of the other images that's sometimes given is that of, uh, we, you know, so just imagining you have a box cutter you know, it's very, very, very useful for, for opening, cutting through tape, cutting through um, packages, opening, you know, things like that. It's quite sharp. You know, it's, you know, it's significantly sharp. Um, but it could be the sharpest, you know, you could get it really, really sharp, sharpen the blade, get a new blade, but you're not going to be able to chop firewood <laughs> with a box cutter. <laughs> you know, it's just the, the nature of it. It's, you know, it has a certain... Uh, um, so this image is of an axe that the, 
the sharpness of the blade is vipassana. That's the cutting through. You know, it's literally cutting through delusion. It's cutting through, you know, we have this delusion that we're this separate, you know, entity that's, in the, you know, that's, that's going to live forever, hopefully, <laughs> and, you know, has its own, you know, uh, its own being, its own existence. You know, cut through the delusion of self, to cut through the delusion of um, security, of permanence. That's the vipassana, that's the sharpness. Uh, the weight of the axe, you know, the heft, the sheer heft of the axe is the samadhi. That's the kind of, you know, you know if you're going to chop some wood, you, you need something pretty, pretty hefty just to get the velocity, just to get, you know, for all those reasons. So they function together beautifully. You really, you, you know, it, one doesn't really work without the other. It's like, um, so the weight of the axe, the heft of the axe is the samadhi. That's the kind of, you know, um, that's solidity. And then the, and then the, sh- the sharpness of the blade is the, is the cutting through, is the seeing. And so they're, they're one thing, really. You, you need, you know, an axe needs to have both. And, um, um, but for the purposes of training, we can, you know, we can say, yes, you know, work on, work on that sharpness, sharpen your mind. You know, it's like, I, you know, I was just, you know, I was kind of out of it. I was like, where am I going? You know, oh yeah, yeah, I got I, I wrote some notes. I should bring those and, you know, to sharpen the mind. And, the, you know, that kind of Mahasi practice of noting, of like it's continually sharpening the mind to seeing the rising, to seeing as rising, seeing the falling as well. So the mindfulness can get really perceptive, really sharp. That's a great practice to do. And then the samadhi practice, this kind of, you know, developing the stillness, the stability, just the simplification, just doing one thing, that, that strengthens that factor. And, you know, so at certain times in our practice, one will be stronger than the other. Um, and then the idea is that they come into balance, you know, and that's, you know, all these factors, all the awakening factors, eventually need to come into balance. Um, well, it's 9.01. <laughs> so, I hope, is there anyone who feels more confused that <laughs> now? Don't, you know, keep, keep it really simple. That's, you know, Gil often says, if it's not simple, it's not vipassana. <laughs> if it's not simple, it's not samadhi. You know, it's like simplicity is really our teacher. You know, there's, there are many interesting Buddhist practices with elaborate things, but just to keep it really simple and just keep coming back to here, to here, to here. And not to get too caught up in, is it samadhi? Is it mindfulness? Is it vipassana? As long as you're here and you're present and just to trust, have a lot of trust that what needs to happen will happen. And when more samadhi is needed, 
The mind will tell you that, and the, you know, you'll go into that. When more knowing, more wisdom is needed, that will come into the forefront. So to really trust that it's, you know, it's this self-correcting practice. And the key is just the continuity. It's just like every day, you know, doing a little bit every day and keeping that thread going, keeping that, the, the heat going. And that's, you know, the water starts to boil. So, so thank you very much. I appreciate your presence here. And wish you much samadhi and much wisdom. And, uh, thank you. <laughs>